I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Hi, everyone. This is Mind Rolling, and I'm Raghu Marcus with a very special guest, Frank Ostaseski. And Frank and I have uh, what wouldn't you say? Welcome, Frank. First of all, say welcome Great to the to show. Be with you. Great to be with you, Raghu. Thank you. Um, but we have a mutual friend who listeners of Mind Rolling are very, extraordinarily very familiar with. Ramdas, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, Frank has done a, a lot of work with uh, Ramdas, and uh, Frank is a, a Buddhist teacher, everybody, and uh, a leading voice in contemplative end of life care. And in 87, 1987, he started the Zen Hospice uh, Project and now has the Meta Institute that really uh, does a tremendous good in this world, training people how to be with dying people and how to care. Uh, so, uh, again, welcome. Really appreciate it. So what I usually do, Frank, is uh, I like to hear your story. How did you, the first realizations, I mean, I know you became a Buddhist, and what were those first triggers and transformational moments that you had? How did they happen and when did they come? That I mean, going way back to the point at which you realized, wow, there is something beyond my mind, my senses, and there truly may be a way to be um, fulfilled and happy. Yeah, let's start there a little bit. Beautiful. You know, um, sometimes in the trainings that we do for healthcare professionals, uh, we ask them a question question is, what's the first thing or object you can remember caring for? And when did that happen? Mm, yeah. Beautiful. And, um, you know, I asked them and they, to remember and reflect a bit. And often, I, then I asked them, when did, when, what, what age were you? 15? No. 10? No. And, you know, when I get down to about five years old, most of the hands go up in the room. Really? And so, Yeah, it's just gorgeous. And, and you know, and, and one of the things that happens for people is that you know, they talk about caring for their collection of dolls or their younger brother or um, a mouse that came into the house, you know. And so we really start to realize that the seeds for what we're doing are planted really early on in our life, you know. And I think they were for me as well. Um, you know, my parents died when I was very young. Oh. And that was an influence in my life. Uh, as you suggested, Buddhism came into my life later on in my teens. Um, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful story by Tagore, which I love. And he talks about how the children used to meander through the villages in India. You know, you've spent a lot of time in those villages. And, um, and then they got shoes. And the paths became very straight between the villages and purposeful. I, I think in my life, I meandered a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I meandered around, you know. Um, and uh, I think my own parents dying when I was young, it was a tough life before they died. They were raving alcoholics. They were mm. troubled people. Mm. Um, all of that suffering um, at first caused me a great deal of isolation. And I tried everything in my being to avoid it. 
And then at some juncture, you turn toward the experience. And when you do, well, it's that turning toward, that turning, that actually gives rise to compassion. Right? And uh, that's what really led me, turning toward my own suffering is what led me to do the work that I do. Do you have a, just in, sorry to interrupt, but just to give us a, a, a specific uh, story mm. around that time that has stayed with you? Um, I used to, when I was a teenager, I used to work in a school for disabled kids, um, severely disabled kids. And um, there was a girl in that school that had a sort of crush on me. And uh, I tried to get her to come into the swimming pool very often, but she wouldn't have any part of it. And uh, so for six months, she would come in. She'd sit at the side of the pool. I'd encourage her to come in, but she wouldn't come. And every day I would tell her how beautiful she was, Hmm. um, um, how bright she was. And one day she showed up in her bathing suit. She dipped her toes in the pool. Six weeks later, she slipped into the pool. Um, working with these kids that were severely disabled, I think they, that had a big influence on me. I really saw, they taught me how to be with suffering. They taught me how it was possible to live with tremendous suffering and not have it define your life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There was a kid in that school, his name was Charlie. He, uh, he had severe muscular dystrophy and he could only move two fingers. Wow. And uh, so I used to bring him in the pool with me, have these elaborate floats all around him. And then Charlie would swim down the pool with these two fingers, you know? Jeez. And it was just gorgeous to see because it was the place in which he could have some movement, of course. But it was also like this human spirit, our capacity to find within our struggle the most deepest alive place in us yeah uh, that's really what uh, i've seen time and again in, in my own work with people who are dying but also in my own life you know? but it's turning toward the suffering that really uh, gives rise to that mm. yeah. yeah and then buddhism how did that uh, enter into your life oh you know i think uh, like most of us you know we're the same you know, Dharma bums. And, uh, you know, I, I studied a lot in Asia, um, got exposed to Buddhism there, time in India, Thailand, Burma. Um, and at the time, I was just looking for something that would take this pain away. You know, I wanted the pain to go away. Uh, I didn't want to explore it. I wanted it to go away. I wanted to transcend it. And um, Buddhism showed me a way to be with it, turn toward it to uh, transform it, not just transcend it. Uh, so that happened uh, when I was probably in my about 20. Mm. Somewhere was, yeah, yeah. And I came back here and, uh, you know, there were big influences in the States. Uh, Joseph and Jack had started to teach then. Ram Dass was, of course, around. Stephen was a really big, Stephen Levine was a big influence in my life, a great teacher and then later a dear friend. And um, all of them, I think, were um, mentors and motivators and, models for me mm. yeah and tell me about ramdas we mentioned that yeah. at the beginning that is really our connection you and i and yeah. and of course uh, he is beyond instrumental in in my own awakening uh, and life and has been for many 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 years how did you meet up with him and hear about him and so on and so forth and how did that oh, I, friendship grow I, I think in the early days it was like everything else, you know, he was the translator of the East to the West. He was um, uh, an amazing uh, Gnostic intermediary, really. Um, and so I've, I was with him at some of his retreats, particularly the ones that he taught with Stephen in the early days. But to be honest with you, I didn't like him so much. <laughs> uh, he was a good talker, uh, but I didn't entirely trust him. And that was um, a challenge. Um, Later, when I started Zen Hospice, he came and taught at the hospice, helped us uh, at the very beginning of it to get it going and such. What did what didn't you trust there? I I, I want to. Uh, there was there was a lot of wrong, there was a lot of Richard Albert there, mm-hmm. um, but really where it shifted, where our relationship shifted actually. Um, I mean, uh, I, I'm eminently, I'm always grateful to him for all that he was and the greatest. The most beautiful thing about Ram Das is that he is taught through his mistakes, mm. that he's always exposed his mistakes, and, and it gave me courage to do the same. But after his stroke, 
that's when we became really close. Really? Oh. Um, that's a, that was a time when um, we became more intimate, I would say. Um, so much had fallen away. There was such a humility in him then, and continues to be. Um, I remember uh, we were having the 10th anniversary of Zen Hospice Project, and I invited him to come speak. It was one of the first public things he did after his stroke. And he, over the phone, stumbled and said, I can't. You know? And I said, it's okay. I said, you know, it's a group of meditators. They can be silent with you. And he came, and we had hundreds and hundreds of people at Spirit Rock. And um, he was brilliant. And it was a very tender time between us. And since then, we've been very, very dear, very close. And when I started the Meta Institute, he was the first one I went to and to become part of the core faculty. And, and um, we sat in his living room, Tiburon, in those days. And he said, uh, sign me up. Mm. I really want to do it. Mm. So I have a deep gratitude and uh, love for him. Mm. And uh, I'm very, very grateful. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. So uh, it's an interesting moment for me to be talking to you in particular right now. Um, I just went through a uh, the passing of a very, very old, very close friend. Mm. And But before I get into my experience there a little bit and share that with you and get some feedback, um, you, you've talked about dying as a sacred art, not mm. about an ecstatic vision, but seeing things in a new way. And I, I certainly experience that whenever... I managed to get close to someone who is passing or in other situations, which I'll, I'll uh, relate to you a little bit later. But can you talk about this particular, I think it's really important. It's something we've lost, obviously, in, in the West, yeah. dying is a sacred art. Please talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, you know from your own experience, and a lot of the listeners know, that mostly we deal with dying these days within a medical environment. We think of dying pretty much as a medical event. But it's much more than that. It's much more than a medical event. It's, um, in my life at least, it's more about relationships. It's about our relationship with ourselves, uh, with those we love, with God, or whoever we might name this ultimate kindness in the, in the universe, and with dying itself. And so much of the work with being with dying is about supporting and developing those relationships. Um, I, I like to say that that relationship's characterized by first um, mastery. And when I'm dying, I do want good medicine. I want somebody in the room who knows what the hell they're doing. I want them to manage my pain and my symptoms, but that won't be enough. I need somebody who's going to be comfortable in the territory of meaning with me, help me discover what has value and purpose in this life. But then there's some juncture in the dying process where meaning falls away completely. And we're still busy talking to grandma about Coney Island and, you know, the music she used to love. And grandma's turning in another direction. And she's turning in the direction of mystery. She's turning in the direction of unanswerable questions, you know. Um, and in that, in that territory, we're all explorers. Um, there was a guy, uh, Ravi, we had a, uh, at Zen Hospice, we had a unit at a place called Laguna Honda Hospital. It's a massive long-term care facility, uh, 1,100 beds. And it's old-style hospital with open wards, 30, 40 people to a, a ward. And you have to walk down this kind of gauntlet of beds, you know, if you can imagine beds on either side of the room. There's nothing like it this side of Calcutta, actually. <laughs> and, and so when we, when we started Zen Hospice, we went there. I thought, if, we're gonna, if we can do it here, we can, if we can demonstrate how to do this kind of conscious dying, conscious caregiving here, then we can do it anywhere. And so one day I'm walking down this, this, this gauntlet of beds, and there's an older African-American man there, and he's sweating bullets. And I, I went over and I sat down beside him, and it was clear to me that he was actively dying. So um, I said to him, uh, you look like you're working really hard. And he said, yeah, and he pointed to the sky, and he said, just got to get there. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. I said, if I promise to keep up, can I come along? And he said, he said, yeah, and he grabbed my hand. And I said, I, I didn't bring my glasses. I can't see there into the distance. Can you tell me what you see? And he began to describe a sloping hillside uh, that went up to a kind of plateau. I said, you want to go? Yeah. Okay, let's go. And he, there we went up this hill. Now, he was working hard, breathing with great difficulty, you know, sweating bullets. 
Now, I could have said to him at this time, you know, you're in Laguna Honda, you're disoriented times three, this is a result of the morphine and the brain metastasis, but none of that was true. What was true is we were walking up a hillside together. Mm-hmm. So then I said, can you see there further into the distance? I can't see. He said, yeah, and he described for me a little one-room red schoolhouse with three steps and a door. This is a man who was born in Mississippi. I said, you want to go? Yeah. And so I said, there's the steps. Okay, there's the door. And um, I said to him, uh, can I go? I always ask permission. And he said, no. (laughs) And I said, okay, then you go. Go ahead. And a few minutes later, he died uh, very peacefully. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I think that... um, The sacred is not something separate or different than the rest of our lives, but rather hidden in our lives, right in the midst of the ordinariness of our life. And the dying is a time when we uncover the sacred, where where the sacred gets revealed to us. It happens at other times in our life, but it especially happens there when the veil is really thin. Um, And that sacred, for some of us, it's going to look like our teacher or our religious practice or um, our time in nature. For him, the sacred was about returning to a kind of learning, and, and the schoolhouse was that for him. You know, it was returning to a place of learning. Yeah. So the sacred is always there, always there. And um, much of our work is to, I think, um, um, be curious enough to discover it. Yeah. Beautiful story, Frank. Yeah. So I'll share a little bit. So as I mentioned, I had a very dear friend, Jyoti is her name. Mm. Uh, she had been dying for two years with uh, liver cancer, actually. and um, But she had been managing it uh, beautifully uh, in, in two ways. One is just she was a very spiritual being, so she just on a day-to-day basis was doing practice. You know, of course, there were days when she was too sick to do that or too or didn't have the energy or got depressed, or got anxiety, or got fear, but she would always keep moving through it. She was also helped physically, actually, by acupuncture in her case, and that that helped her um, keep balanced through this. I mean, they told you, you have six months, two years later. So mm. then she had a, uh, an, uh, you know, I, we believe a heart incident. She had a very, very specific uh, DNR, so there was no question about diagnostics or anything so i heard they heard i heard about it and i i got the word and i uh it was uh, up in my hometown actually of montreal and so i had to fly up there and i got there the day after she stopped drinking and, and of course she wasn't eating but she stopped drinking the couple of days previous she had been conscious so mm. she went and then they started you know, there was a little bit of anxiety, and then they started giving her morphine. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she was not uh, conscious on, on the level of uh, relating. And uh, I got there, and the family, you know, these people, you know, I knew the kids when they were born, and it was that kind of relationship, really part of my family. And so they just uh, had me, uh, they said, well, go in there. And so I spent several hours with her mm. alone. And just I was just doing some practices and holding her hand. And, and she, But she was gone and, you know, uh, really fairly drugged. Um, I thought maybe a little bit too much, you know. They err on, on that side, perhaps, and I've seen this before. Um, but there was a way that we were connecting and, uh, and I felt like my presence was known. There's also, it's very difficult. I mean, you know this more than anybody, but how the ego comes in and you want that person to be, um, recognizing the fact that A, you're there and B, you care and that there's love coming. And I recognized that in myself, and, and my practice was, uh, so it was a, a letting go. So I was sitting there letting go. She was sitting there let, lying there and letting go. And uh, it ended up uh, just 
doing these practices and sharing them with her. And, uh, and as usual, I thought, okay, well, I've known people in the past, they stopped drinking water. Maybe, you know, they're good for about a week after that. Although some people actually last longer than that without drinking. She died the next morning, early in the morning. And yeah, then I had to go through a little bit of regret. Had why hadn't I gotten here a little bit earlier, and so on and so forth. And it was amazing how much work I went through. So what you just said before about mm-hmm. what gets revealed in this process, and I remembered something that uh, Ramdas had said: uh, being with dying people brings me to the um, edge of awakening. Mm-hmm. And wasn't that so true? And yeah, in yeah. fact, uh, I, uh, and I've told this on a podcast before, actually it happened when my father left a couple of years ago. Uh, a, a, another satsang person and I, who knew him quite well, sat in his room and we meditated with him. This is a couple of days actually before he left. And we got to that place, and the only thing that I could identify about the place, which Ramdas termed edge of awakening, was when I first met Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji. Mm-hmm. And I got to that place, right on the edge of you know, losing my uh, role-playing, uh, ro- losing my uh, previous identities and my judgmental mind and all of that and in that moment with my dad i recognized oh my god this is the same as that and i remember talking to ramdas and saying isn't it curious how could that be with you're with somebody who's dying and and you have the experience you had with somebody who was totally alive right a realized being who was more alive than anybody i ever met in my life and how those two things came together Uh, so it was Pretty amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing the story. And, and wasn't she lucky that you were there? And weren't you fortunate to be with her? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I sometimes, as you suggest, conversation falls away or ability to connect cognitively falls away. But the eyes of someone who's dying, they are really clear mirrors. And, and they show me myself like nothing else. You know, they, they show me where I'm holding, my greed, my wishes, the, the, the wish to be acknowledged that you described. Yeah. Um, but also they show me something else. They show me my beauty and a kind of undying love. Uh, that also shows up there mm-hmm. in, in their eyes, you know. Um, and, um, and there's, uh, as we were saying earlier, when the veils get thin between the worlds, so to speak, you know, um, something in us gets more less opaque we become more transparent beings actually we're more porous that's the best way i could describe it you know a few years ago i was um uh having a video conference with ramdas much like this when i had a severe heart attack and um jeez i'm not in the midst of it yeah well um what was happening was i was having angina i was having pain earlier that day and then the pain got really bad actually, when I was literally having a conversation with Ramdas, and you know, often when he does those calls, he has a picture of, uh, of um, Maharaji behind him. And so I, when I was having this pain, I just focused in on Maharaji, actually. Mm. And um, uh, Ramdas was talking, and what I, the way I knew I was having a heart attack is it reminded me of when my son's mother gave birth. She was very annoyed with me. She, um, she got emotionally irritable with me and during this heart pain i was getting emotionally irritable with ramdas <laughs> and uh and, and i love him and so that's really what gave me the clue that something really serious was happening was seeing that i was responding to my friend with reactivity wow. and so i looked at neem karoli's picture you know and uh and it calmed me it really calmed me and then i said to ramdas you have to continue here with these people i have to go somewhere and they took me to the hospital and i had a heart attack oh, Anyway, uh, the reason I bring it up is that um, during the recovery, the months of recovery after that, I felt myself to be more of a porous being. And that's the best way I could describe it. Um, 
it was as though the whole world could impress itself on my consciousness. Um, and maybe you were experiencing something like that with Jyoti, the feeling of all the beauty and all the horror of the world that can impress itself on our consciousness when we are more vulnerable. Um, we think of vulnerability as a kind of defensiveness or weakness, but actually when we, that's mostly the defenses against vulnerability. Vulnerability itself is just open. It's just porous. It's just transparent. And that's what happens in and around the time of dying. And it can happen for the person who's dying, but also for his or her caregivers as well, as it was happening for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's exquisite. Actually, it's really exquisite. And we miss it. We miss it all the time because we're so focused on, you know, the, you know, most people die in hospitals. And most families uh, observe that dying by looking at a TV monitor, we, we, we watch for the dreaded flat line that we see on those medical shows, you know? Mm -hmm. and, we, and that's the signal that somebody's died for us. Not what's happening for us in our hearts or in our own bodies or in the sense of connectivity with the person who's dying. We've, we've become so, we've so over-professionalized, so medicalized, so made it so technological that we've forgotten what we already know. The, the simplicity, the beauty, the, the innate kindness that we can rely on. It's really trustworthy for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, let's see, something else that uh, struck me that I think would be, be quite invaluable to everybody mm. who listens to this podcast or who might listen to it. Um, it's something I have a an issue with. That I am working on myself. And uh -huh. the topic is deep listening. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I don't know who's, I, and I, I probably won't get this quote right, but somebody, and I can't remember who said it, but somebody, uh, a well-known author, said uh, one of the most generous things that you can do in this life is to really pay attention and deeply listen to another person. And that always stuck with me because I have such, I guess, ADD difficulty. I'm looking around. I'm not, you know, uh, my wife will attest to this, by the way, Frank. <laughs> we meet her one of these days. She'll tell you all about it. Uh, but talk about deep listening and its, its real importance. Well, you know, uh, as you suggest, it is a very generous act. I mean, for me, it's gen what I would call generous listening is an act of love. You know, when someone's telling their story, like, for example, when I'm with people near the end of their life and they're looking back on their life, reviewing their life and sharing their story, somebody has to receive it. You know, the cycle doesn't get completed unless somebody receives it. So when we listen, we have to listen with our whole being, you know, not just our ears or our intellect. We have to listen with our heads, but also our hearts and our bodies. Um, and, and so when I listen with my head, I, I cultivate wisdom and clarity and discernment. But I run the risk of falling into judgment and criticality. Mm. When I listen from my heart, I, I cultivate altruism and compassion and love, but I, I run the risk of falling into a kind of unhealthy merging with the person. And when I listen from my body, I, I cultivate something really powerful, intuition and also presence. But I run the risk of getting caught in fight, flight, or, you know, freeze. So we have to listen all the way through, all the way through head, heart, and body. Most of, our, most of us listen from one or more of those centers. And we have a kind of habit, and we get stuck in that habit. We listen from our heads or just from our hearts. And we think it's the most important place. But really, the most important thing is the whole being showing up, yeah? Whole being showing up. And then the whole being of the other person can show up, yeah? Yeah. So, um... So for me, you know, I don't really feel like I have to do very much when people are dying. I don't speak very much. I, I, I talk less and listen more. Huh? Mm. Hey, let, let me share a, a story with you. Mm, there, there were two men with AIDS in the hospice. One of them was named Stephen and the other Rick, both dying of AIDS. Rick also had stroke, not unlike Ramdas, and so he had aphasia, but so he couldn't find his words, and he was really angry. He was just furious. Rick, on the other hand, uh, Stephen, on the other hand, was almost transparent. When you went into his room, you felt like you were walking into a sanctuary. 
So this one day, Stephen was dying. And I, I went down the hall to Rick and I said, look, it looks like Stephen might be dying today. If you want to say goodbye, today's the day. And so I helped Rick down the hall. He came in the room and he sat on the edge of Stephen's bed. And, and I sat in the corner. I don't do very much. And then these two men, they entered into this kind of silent exchange. It was so sweet, so tender. They didn't say a word to each other. 10 minutes passed, 15, 20 minutes passed. Not a word. Not a word. But the listening was so profound. And then Rick just nodded his head. He couldn't speak very well. And Stephen said, yeah, that was great. That was really great. And, and, and Rick got up from his room, up from his, the bed, and went back to his room, and Stephen died that afternoon. So what happened there? I mean, for me, what happened was that Rick knew that he was looking at his own destiny. He knew that he was going to die in a matter of days, weeks, or months at the most. And he was terrified. But Stephen, with a generous heart, with a compassionate heart, because he'd done his homework, looked back at Rick with so much love, so much love in his heart, that um, he, he gave him, he, he was with him in a fearless way, fearless way. And without a word, this listening was going on, this, this, this exquisite exchange between the two of them. You know? So I think that listening heals. Um, one of my mentors and people I studied was Carl Rogers and the great humanist psychologist. And, and Carl had a way of healing without ever saying a word. He very rarely spoke when he was with his clients. He mostly listened. And that listening was perceived by the other as full and total acceptance. And uh, I, as you suggest, I can't imagine a greater gift we could give to another human being. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Since you've brought up the subject of uh, that's crucial for the work that you do, crucial for our whole world as it is and the way that we relate to each other and what's going on politically, what's going on socially, what's going on culturally and uh, between us as tribes and countries and mm -hmm. something we lack so much of. And, of course, that's mm -hmm. compassion and and so much of the work His Holiness the Dalai Lama is doing to try and transform that and many other uh, true spiritual leaders. But uh, we can't go one inch further in this conversation without a little bit of a, a chat about compassion. And, uh, uh, and I like what you call it, intelligent, natural response of our being, yeah. especially in the presence of suffering. I mean, that's... Uh, please... Uh, talk about that for a minute, Frank. Well, well, you know, I mean, this is a word that gets thrown around, you know, like a Hallmark card these days, compassion. But, you know, I, I think of it as a kind of guidance, the best way I could describe it. It's a kind of guidance of our being, particularly in the territory of suffering. You know, it, it, it's all about that. Now, um, mostly we think about compassion as this kind of effort to uh, console someone or give them kind words or perhaps to relieve the conditions of their suffering. And all that's good if you can do it. But the people I work with who are dying, you know, well, we have this idea that compassion is about making people feel safe. And dying doesn't feel safe for most people. You know, it feels scary. But when I'm abiding in compassion, when I'm resting, what I find is that the other person recognizes something in me and is willing to go toward territory which might otherwise seem very, very dangerous for them mm. because they are a company, because there's compassionate companionship. Um, sometimes I talk about compassion as having these two facets, what we might call universal compassion, which is big, boundless, empty, vast, always there. Everybody and everything, you and me, have always been embraced by this, even if we didn't know it. And then there's Everyday compassion. There's you do stuff. You, you change soiled sheets. You you make you feed someone soup. You you you, you get shelter for someone who's homeless. You know? that's most of what we do every day. Now, relative compassion by itself is exhausting. We get tired. We want people to thank us. We get pissed off when they don't acknowledge our our good works. You know, 
So relative compassion has to be sourced or rooted in universal compassion, right? Now, universal compassion is really good. But if prayer could solve all the suffering in the world, well, we'd have had it licked by now. So universal compassion is not enough. It needs relative compassion. Mm. It needs us. It needs our arms and legs, our, our tongues and eyes. You know? That's how it manifests in the world, through us. Yeah? Um, and it does that through a kind of empathetic precision, by, by seeing what matters most in the moment and turning toward that. Yeah? Mm. You know Bernie Glassman. Maybe he's been on one of your casts here. Bernie's a great character, a wonderful Zen teacher. He was teaching in Germany um, a few years ago. And he was talking about Avalokiteshvara. Now, Avalokiteshvara, for those listeners who don't know it, is a Tibetan uh, form of, of uh, Buddha, you could say, a deity, uh, the embodiment of compassion. And, and often she's depicted with a thousand arms. And then in each hand is either an eye or an ear, depending on the artist's interpretation, um, an, an eye to see the suffering of the world, an ear to hear the cries of the world. And so Bernie was teaching about this in Germany, you know, uh, really this, this coming together, universal and everyday compassion. And uh, the man raised his hand in the audience and he said, you know, uh, this is very good. It's a wonderful teaching, but I have only these two arms. What should I do? And Bernie very compassionately said, that's not true. And the man said, no, I'm quite sure I have just these two arms. Just these two, I'm sure. And Bernie said, no, you're mistaken. And then he had everybody in the room raise both their hands. There were hundreds of people in the room. You know? And the man looked, at, he said, and had the man look around, you know, thousand arms, thousand arms in the room. So when we act in our everyday compassion, without, we, we have to be connected to that source. You have to understand that's what it's coming from, you know, that it, that, it, that it isn't of our creation in a way, that we're the vehicles for it in a way. But it's really important that the vehicle is there because, you know, it's not enough to pray. It's not enough to pray. We have to act. Mm. You know? um, yeah. 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 There's that... Uh similar to the fine line of social action where people, and Ramdas, of course, talks about this a lot, doing all of the good works that you might be doing, but then neglecting to do those works on yourself before you get out there. So it's, yeah. a, it's a twofold yeah. action. And in this case, yeah. uh, you're saying the same thing around compassion. I like that. <laughs> That's really right. Well, well, you know, and, and, and this, this other piece that I, I want to just, zero in a little bit more, which we don't talk about. We think of compassion as this big, broad thing, but it's, it's very precise, actually. It, 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 it attends to what matters most. Like there was a woman that was getting, was dying at the hospice, and she wanted to get married. And so she asked me if I would perform the ceremony. I said, sure, happy to. I said, well, what you really need is a wedding coordinator. And I'm really good at that. I can do that. And uh, she said, okay. And, and so every day I would come into a room and we would talk about the cake, what dress she wear, and um, anything about her boyfriend. And, and we did all that stuff because I understood that when she said she wanted to get married, she was talking about something much deeper than, you know, just going through the ceremony with this guy. And so one day in the middle of talking about the cake, she just burst into tears. And I said, what is that, honey? What is that? And she said, I just want my mom to be there. I just want my mom to be there. Now, in that moment, the very face of her suffering was that she was getting married and she wanted her mother to be at her wedding. It wasn't that she was dying. It wasn't about her cancer. This was the face of her suffering. So compassion has to attune very precisely to what matters most. Otherwise, it's going to miss the mark. Otherwise, the person's going to feel that it's, you know, you're, you're relating to where they should be or how they should be feeling about them. Right. So it's this quality of, of empathetic precision, which mm. I think part of its beauty. Yeah. yeah, that's where deep listening would come in handy, yeah. right? Right, right, yeah. right. Well, they all go together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's some other place where I saw uh, you just mentioned something that's always stayed with me since those God when these books came out. There, Carlos Castanadas's books with Don Juan, right? The Way of the Yaki, and. Uh, 
probably more relevant now that uh, I'm older than I was then. <laughs> older than that now, as Dylan said. Yeah. And that is keeping death. What Don Juan said, keep death on your left shoulder. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an apt statement, an apt image. And, uh, and something, you know, I do talk about at various times on podcasts about the, uh, although when I, that did impact me and I was at the, when that book came out, I was in my twenties. That's when I went to India and all that. Um, and that did impact me and did stay with me. It didn't take on the, uh, the more serious, shall we say, effort that is required, quote unquote, with practice yeah. of utilizing that concept until later years. Although I now say, and, and many, many uh, new generation uh, people do listen to this podcast and, and I can hear the groan on the other side going, yeah, what the heck, it's, you know, uh, this isn't something I want to spend my time at, but the practice of it uh, so where uh, anything that happens, and anything can happen to anybody at any point, any time. And uh, Frank would know best about that, having <laughs> met uh, so many people that he's, that he's worked with. So that uh, the advice is really keep that on your left shoulder, meaning um, the practice where you then, uh, when the encounter eventually does come or comes sooner, and then uh, you just are, uh, you react knee-jerk in the right way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah, they, I mean, they, they say, you know, we fall back in our training when we're in crisis. You know, what have we trained ourselves to do? To look away or to turn toward? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, um, I think, well, first of all, uh, we think about dying as something that happens at the end of a long road, you know, the, at the end of our life, at the end of a long-term illness or, yeah. or a car accident or some such thing. But no, no, now, right now. You know, in, in Japanese Zen, there's a beautiful word, shoji, and it means um, birth and death, birth and death, or life and death. Yeah? And there's a little hyphenated hyphen in between those two, life and death. And that's really the only thing that separates them, one thin line, you know, between mm. life and death, birth and death. And so basically what it's saying, it's a package deal. You know, you don't get one without the other. You know, it's like a cruise. You know, you, you got to get the rent a car and everything right with it. So, so birth and death come together. And a life that doesn't include death then is only half a life. It doesn't really matter, you know. So when for me, um, I keep my attention on that fact, not that death will come at the end of a long road, but that it's here now. I start to not hold, take myself so seriously. Mm. I don't have my ideas so grandly, you know. I, I, I let go a little easier. I relinquish more, more easily. So what it does is it puts me in con when I, it puts me into contact with how precarious this life actually is in any moment. And because it's precarious, it's also precious. And then I don't want to waste a moment. Then I want to jump into my life with both feet, you know. I want to really embrace this life. I want to step in completely and fully. Um, I don't want to miss a moment of it. And I don't just mean out of greed. I mean, it is so exquisite that I want to be in it. I want to swim in it all the time. Yeah. Mm. So not just to prepare. And, and if I, then I live my life that way, that's the habit I would have created. That's what's going to show up in the time of my dying. Not whether or not I learned some esoteric Buddhist practice. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Create that habit. Create the right habit. Yeah, that's right. that's death on the left shoulder. That's keeping yeah. it there. Yeah, yeah. Now the problem is that that I think that while you know Don Juan reminded Carlos to, to do that, really what we have on our left shoulder most of the time is the critic. Yeah, we have death is not there. The, the critic is there, and it's it, you know wants to maintain that top dog billing. It, you know, it says <laughs> I know, I know what you should do. You know, and uh, so we have to find some way of. Uh, skillfully learning to disengage from that critic. Otherwise, it rules the roost, so to speak, and, yeah. and doesn't help us a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. Infuse the critic with wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you mentioned Bernie Glassman just before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh and he does these as as you know, these bearing witness retreats and so yeah. on. Um and you talk about bearing witness too, and I think it's a it's uh something that uh I wanted to bring up in this conversation. Uh not turning away when the going gets rough, but staying yeah. present in the territory of the mystery, as you've you've talked about before, and uh, and we we're getting close to the uh, to the end of the end of the show, uh, and I wanted end I want to end it. I think it's important uh, this bearing witness, and I think it has uh, a multiplicity of applications here, and. Um, if there was anything I learned in that moment just a few days ago for me with my friend Jyoti was experiencing the, the mystery and, and honoring it, actually. not, not so, Experiencing is not the right word. Honoring it mm-hmm. in my life, her life, where we were together in that moment. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, look, this is as I suggest, this is the territory of unanswerable questions. You know, we don't know how it's going to turn out. None of us know what's going to happen after we die. We have all kinds of ideas about it. Scary ideas or comforting ideas, but we don't know. Right? So what would it be like if we turned toward this life with a sense of curiosity, wonder? Yeah. Now, for me, that's what mystery is about. It was a wonderful, um, teacher, Buddhist teacher, who talked about, he said, if we align ourselves with the reality that who we are and the way the world is are not fundamentally different, then the fact that things are not stable and permanent becomes a liberating opportunity rather than a, rather than a threat. Yeah. Mm. So, so when we live into the mystery, well, who knows what's going to happen next? you know, right now, then we incline the mind, we incline the heart toward um, uh, seeing mystery like an old friend, you know, like we finally get to sit down with and have a cup of tea at some point, you know. Um, anyway, I think that that's, that's one of the ways that I, 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 for me, I'm all about living here and now. This is most. This is how I prepare for the next thing: living here and now, with as much uh, curiosity, wonder, heartfulness, wisdom as I can muster. Mm. Yeah, you know, you just said something, and and it. I just remembered this, and I hadn't quite remembered it. I was sitting with Jyoti, and at one point, I just started saying out loud, "Gee, let's. We should look at this. This could be an. It's an adventure." We're, this yeah. can be a real adventure, yeah. so let's enjoy. This is you've always loved adventures, Jyoti, and she loved going to India, you know, and experiencing new things and so on. So this is, and I just sat there imagining what that adventure might be and uh, how we could rather take delight in discovering, in mm-hmm. the discovery, delight in the discovery. Yeah, beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, we're often so caught up in our grief and our resistance to the experience that we we forget, in a way, that this adventure, as you put it, is available, um, not only at the time of dying, but all the time. Yeah. It's every moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Frank. This has been fantastic to sit with okay. you like this. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was nice to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. No, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and by the way, everybody, you can go, uh, Frank's site is metainstitute.org, M-E-T-T-A-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E.org, but it will be up on the Mind Rolling site and where you'll find the podcast and you'll be able to uh, share uh, in... Uh, uh, whatever else, what, what, what else? Actually, give us a little recommendation of what if somebody's looking for for something to read or, or in any way downloads or whatever it might be. What might you recommend? Well, around uh, this subject, obviously. Yeah, I mean, working with the good of the Math Institute, they'll see some courses there, including some courses that Ramdas is um, 
one of the teachers, he's on the core faculty of our institute. So they can go there and see that. Um, you know, I, I think the best books that I've seen out there, the best, very best book is by Kathleen Dowling Singh, S-I-N-G-H, called Grace and Dying. And it's by far the best book uh, on the subject. And it really has S-I-N-G, did you say? S-I-N-G-H. S-I-N-G-H. And it's called Grace and Dying. And she wrote it several years ago now, but it's probably the best book on the subject that I know. And of course, Stephen's books, his original books are all great, good too, Stephen Levine's books. Um, so those are all uh, oh, places wonderful. that I can go. Um, here's the thing that I want to leave your listeners with, though. Um, I have a slogan that I use in my work, and it's don't wait. You know, I mean, to imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the mental clarity, the emotional stability, the physical strength to do the work of a lifetime is an absurd gamble. Mm-hmm. So, so don't wait for that moment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there is a power in the time of dying that's particular and unique, and there are conditions that are supportive, but we have to do the work now. Now we have to do If there's someone you love, tell them you love them now. Mm-hmm. You know, so that they can know it and you can know it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't wait. Don't wait. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Frank. Frank Rostaseski, Meta Institute. Also, uh, you'll be able to get these books up on Amazon, everybody, and go through our link and bookmark it, the Amazon portal, so that we get a little piece to help support the program. And we shall see you all next week on Mind Rolling.